You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HOS Communications. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a topic that's frequented multiple newspaper headlines recently, which is artificial sweeteners. We'll start by unpacking the basics, including the history of non-sugar sweeteners, how they're defined, and then we'll move on to some of the myths and confusion surrounding this important topic. I'll also be asking our special guest for his thoughts on some of the most recent research that's come out in this area. So to discuss this hot topic, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Paul McArdle, and I'm going to hand over to Paul now, who's going to tell us a bit more about himself. Hi, Harriet. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm I'm Paul. I'm a UK registered dietitian with uh, 21 years experience. And um, over that time, I specialised in um, diabetes, weight management, mental health. And, and one of the things I'm really passionate about as a dietitian is, um, is evidence-based um, advice and, and information. And so, um, you know, I got into working on guideline development groups um, some time ago. So, so that's a passion of mine. So I currently work both in the NHS um, and privately. I also represent my profession at a national level as um, in, in the British Dietetics Association. So I'm a chair of the specialist diabetes group for them as well. Brilliant. So lots of great experience. And thank you so much again for joining us today, Paul. So before we get stuck into our topics of discussion, we always ask our guests our quick fire round of questions so that we get to know you on a bit more of a personal basis. So my first question, and obviously you're sat there with a lovely glowing tan, Paul, is <laughs> where is your favourite place to go on holiday? Well, that's a tricky one. I don't have one favourite. I just came back from Turkey. So, you know, somewhere sunny, somewhere with sea, but more importantly, you know, to be with um, family and, and friends and loved ones and have some really nice food. So obviously. Obviously important for a dietitian, mm. good food. Mm. And in terms of your um, current reading, is there a top book that you can recommend to any of our listeners? What have you been reading lately? Yeah, so I um, I came quite late to this book, but I'm read- reading a book called Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd, and it, it actually talks about um, mental health in in gay men and the impacts of um, growing up in the closet and how that can affect body image and and other aspects of mental health. So it's it's kind of part memoir, part um, you know self help. It's um, it's a really interesting book. I'd recommend it to anybody. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that tip. And finally, who inspires you in, in your day-to-day life? Oh, that is, a, again, a really difficult one. I, I get inspiration from from lots of different leaders, I suppose. I look to leadership as um, as something which provides calmness, um, you know, direction, compassion. Um, and there's lots of you know, great examples of leaders um, who, who provide that. So I take my inspiration from them. Great answer. Thank you very much, Paul. So obviously today's episode is all focused around sweeteners. And I wanted to begin by asking you, um, what first sparked your interest in non-sugar sweeteners? Yeah, I got into specializing in diabetes quite early on in my career. So I'd say I've been been in diabetes for for almost 20 years. And um, I discovered quite soon into working in diabetes that there's lots of people who are unsure about sweeteners, and that's both uh, patients or people with diabetes as well as healthcare professionals. They were a little bit unclear on what they were, 
um, you know, which ones um, to go for and, and the possible benefits they could have on, on blood glucose. And so I made it my business really to find out about them, to, to educate myself a bit more uh, because we weren't really taught in massive detail about them at, at university um, and to make sure when, when we give advice to people, we can be really clear. And just taking a, a step back for a moment, can we perhaps delve more into the definition of non-sugar sweeteners? I think lots of us just clump them together as sweeteners in general or use the term artificial sweeteners. So what are specifically non-sugar sweeteners? Yeah, so um, the, there are a couple of different definitions of sweeteners and the ones we're talking about here are non-sugar or non-nutritive sweeteners. So they're, they're substances or food ingredients which provide sweetness without providing calories. Um, now, there are other types of sweeteners, which we're not really discussing here, which we might term bulk sweeteners, such as fructose, for example, you know, which you can buy in a powder in, in health food stores and what have you. And that, and that does provide calories in, in the amounts that it's used in. But the non-nutritive or non-sugar sweeteners we're talking about here don't provide calories. And, and the way that they do that is they're very intensely sweet. So they could be 200, 300, 600 times sweeter um, per weight than sugar. Um, and so therefore they're used in tiny, tiny amounts. Um, so there isn't a single definition really of, of sweeteners, but the non-nutritive sweeteners we're talking about today would be those. And in terms of the history behind these um, non-sugar sweeteners, are they a relatively new concept? Have they been around for a long time and how, how were they discovered? Tell us a bit more. So yeah, they're, they're, they're not new at all. <laughs> um, they've been around for, for decades and some for hundreds of years. In fact, one of, one of the sweeteners that listeners will know of that's been around for the longest time is perhaps saccharin. And that's been, uh, that was first discovered in, in 1879 by, um, by a, um, a chemist actually working at uh, John uh, Hopkins University in, in America. And so he discovered this substance. Um, lots of sweeteners have in fact been discovered or been um, adapted from things. So for example, you know, sucralose has got a very similar um, structure to sucrose, which as we know is, is table sugar, uh, but it's just much more intensely sweet. Um, you know, if you're thinking about steviol um, glycosides, you know, they, they're extracted from the stevia plant, which was used in ancient societies many years ago to sweeten food. So, so yeah, they're not new at all. <laughs> No, it sounds like they've definitely got a real um, historical heritage. And I'm wondering how many different types of non-sugar sweeteners exist, do you know? Yeah, there's quite a lot. But if we think about the UK, there are actually 11 um, uh, non-sugar sweeteners approved for use in, in the UK. So you've probably heard of some of them. So I've mentioned some of them already, such as we've got saccharin, we've got, um, we've got stevia, there's aspartame, there's sucralose, um, which is a really difficult one to say. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so, so actually there's, according to some um, recent surveys by the British Soft Drinks Association, there's actually very uh, low awareness um, of the different types of sweeteners. And the reason why that's important is because they are different. And I, I come across patients quite often who say, oh, I don't like this sweetener. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I won't try this instead of sugar. And actually there's, there's such a wide range available now that people need to revisit them because they all taste different and they, and they have different uses. So some perform better in cooking than others. Um, you know, some, some might, you might prefer the flavor of one to the other. So yeah. So with 11, there's kind of one for everyone really in terms of the flavor profile that are out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And lots of different tools in the toolbox, I, I guess, for health professionals working with patients who are looking to implement um, and use non-sugar sweeteners. Why is it important for health professionals, such as our dietitians listening today, to really have an awareness of non-sugar sweeteners? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so so we know that there is a, a lack of awareness of them. There's also a lack of um confidence, I suppose, in, in the potential benefits of them. And I think in order to improve health professional um, understanding, we need to boost people's um, boost people's knowledge of the different sweeteners and of the evidence around about them. So I think one of the issues is um, knowing the different types, knowing where they're found, um, and understanding what the research says about their potential benefits. So there are potential benefits for some people in terms of weight management, in terms of you know reducing their free sugar intake, which which we know is a key public health priority. Um, but in in particular in diabetes. Um, you know, obviously reducing carbohydrate intake and reducing sugar intake is a key priority, particularly in type 2 diabetes. And so for health professionals to know which products contain which types of sweeteners and which ones they recommend they can recommend to their patients is really it's really important because if we're not confident as as dietitians, it's very hard to um, to instill confidence in, in our patients. Yeah. And on that note, um, recently I've had lots of conversations, you know, family and friends and things asking about sweeteners and whether they're safe to use and all this emerging research that's coming out. So is there any truth to these safety concerns that people might have around sweeteners? And specifically, are there any groups that perhaps need to be more careful when we're, th- when we're talking about non-sugar sweeteners? Yeah. So, I mean, if we're talking about safety, um, one of the things that is worth people knowing more about with sweeteners is that this, there's this um, uh, safe upper limit. Um, the safe upper limit is called the acceptable daily intake. Um, and so all sweeteners have an acceptable daily intake, um, which is based on uh, individual body weight. So it's kind of like an individual um, individual level. And that is set at 100 times lower than the level which was found to be harmful in, in rats. So there's a huge, huge margin of safety there in terms of, you know, we looked at what can be harm, what's harmful in rats. And then we've set 100 times lower than that as the safe upper limit for, for human consumption. So in terms of toxicity and safety, we're, we're, we're very, very far away from that. And in fact, in my career, in the last 20 odd years, I've not come across anybody really who's getting that close to the, to the ADI. You need to be consuming 15, 16 um, glasses of, of, of um, you know, um, diet drink uh, per day to, to be getting close to it. And that, and that ADI is about a lifetime exposure. So, so there are, you know, organizations such as the European Food Safety Authority, um, the World Health Organization, um, who have all deemed these, um, the, the sweetness to be safe when consumed within the acceptable daily intake. So, so I think that should help to reassure people it's very hard to get to that ADI unless you're consuming vast quantities um, of these products. Um, and there's a huge margin of safety set in, in, within the research. Now, there is a, a section of the population um, who, who do need to be careful. So we, so we know about um, phenylketonuria um, and, and those uh, people who've got this quite rare disorder uh, need to be aware of sources of aspartame uh, because aspartame is broken down and one of the one of the things aspartame is broken down to is phenylalanine so um, so they need to be aware of that and to avoid that which is fairly easy to do and it's a, again a very specific section of the of the population. 
That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that you're closely involved with the British Soft Drinks Association and, and that they had a consumer survey earlier this year, which found that around 15% of people surveyed thought that sweeteners cause cancer. Can you tell us more about where this idea originates from? Yeah, again, you know, we, we can go back to some of the research, which has often been done in mice and rats, um, and they've given mice and rats vast, vast quantities of, of sweeteners um, and, and, and seen some you know, harmful effects from, from mice and rats. So um, I don't tend to hold that much stock in, in, in those sorts of studies because they're not that applicable to humans. Um, but I think we, we need to think about how we use the word cause because people talk about this causes that or this you know, something causes another thing. And actually, that's not what the research shows. The research is primarily in this area, or in fact, almost entirely in this area, it's observational research. So you're looking at huge populations of, um, of people and you're studying what happens to them over time and you're getting them to report to you what they're doing in terms of their diet or other lifestyle things. So these observational studies have, have shown um, associations. Um, but the problem with those associations is that you've got what's called residual confounding. So whenever you're studying a population uh, of people and trying to track what happens to them over time, you're collecting what you think might be having an impact, but you actually don't know everything that could be possibly impacting them. And you're not collecting it all. And you may not be collecting something that's really important that's actually affecting that outcome. So when we say cause... Um, it's not causation. It's not this causes that. Um, it's that there's observational studies which say, show an association which might be caused by other things. And then the other thing about observational studies, which is really important, is that we need to think about something called reverse causation. Um, so sometimes we're looking at effects in time, which actually determined by something which happened at a different time point. So, so it might be that certain, certain types of people are more likely to select um, a, a, a food type or a way of eating. Um, and they've actually already predisposed, before they've made that choice, they're predisposed to the outcome that we're, we're trying to associate with, um, with what they've selected. So, so reverse causation is a particular issue as well in this type of research. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, also, perhaps some of our listeners will be aware that there was a large-scale um, prospective cohort study that was published in the BMJ just earlier this month, September, which did suggest a potential direct association between um, high artificial sweetener consumption and increased cardiovascular disease risk. What are your thoughts on, on that study specifically? I'm guessing it links into what you've already mentioned about causation and correlation, but tell us a bit more. Exactly. And so that's, that's a really, that study is a really good example of what I was just talking about. So that's a French population study. Um, so it studied just over 100,000 French um, people. And it's part of a much bigger research program where they're collecting data on, on lots of other things. Now, they, they did something where they, they, they sliced off about a fifth of the, of the study population because um, they felt that the data reported fell outside of what they would expect. So, so we don't know what's going on there. So that's an interesting um, aspect of the methodology the other thing these people are self-selecting so people have signed up to this study and so what you find is that 80 percent women they tend to be of higher education than, than average they tend to be more likely to be overweight um, so we've got to take that into account as as well um, so so there are some aspects of the study population it's self-selection etc then it's how are they collecting the data so they're collecting the data based on 24-hour recall 
Um, and, they're, and they're trying to match up that with databases of food products to try and establish which sweeteners people were, were consuming. Now, we know that often sweeteners are used in combination. So, for example, in soft drinks, it's often aspartame and acetylphane K. And, and how do you, when people are consuming um, things in, in a blended way, how do you separate the effects of the two, which I'm not entirely sure how they've been able to, to claim to, to do that. Um, and then the other thing is the, the end points that they're looking at, you know, they talked about cardiovascular disease, but they're actually grouping together lots and lots of different um, diseases or, or conditions, um, which we you know are likely to have a distinct etiology, which will be different from from one another. Um, and there's not really much of a, you know, there's not really much exploration of the um, what might be the link, what might be the causation there. So, so it's not actually saying um, that sweeteners cause these things. And we have to be very careful with the language that we use when we're talking about the association. So I think some of the language in the paper talked about increased risk. It's not really, that's not really an accurate way of reporting it. So we're talking about an association in a, in a self-selected population where there could be other factors at play. So it adds to the, you know, adds to the body of research, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean we should change our public health advice. That's very interesting. And for people listening who are interested in reading these papers in a bit more detail, we will uh, link to them in the show notes, of course. Um, now, just continuing on from this, Paul, because it's such an interesting topic and I'm sure our listeners will be, um, you know, really interested in exploring this in a bit more detail. In terms of the gut microbiome, obviously gut health is a very much talked about uh, area of dietetics at the moment. Um, human research published in Cell recently found that in all sweetener groups studied, non-nutritive sweeteners um, distinctly altered stool and oral microbiomes. And they also noted that the impacts on the microbiome are casually linked, sorry, causally linked to elevated glycemic response. Can you tell us a bit more about this study and the impact of those findings? I can, yeah. So if anybody wants to read this study, then you need to put a bit of quite a bit of time aside because it's quite a, it's quite a complicated um, study that's doing quite a lot of clever science, I, I, I suppose. But I think you know before that, I think it's worth noting that um, you know according to a recent survey by the British Soft Drinks Association, there isn't a clear consensus on on how um, sweeteners affect gut health. And in fact, there was even um, a panel of experts um, looked at this recently at, um, at a conference and found they concluded that there's no evidence of impact on gut microbiome from, um, from sweeteners. Um, and actually, prior to this study, there were only two studies in humans. Um, so this becomes only the third study, really, that shows anything. Um, and so we're gaining a, a sort of understanding of the literature with this with this, this additional study. Prior to that, it was all looking at rats and mice, and they gave rats and mice, you know, multiple times the amount of sweeteners that, that, that a human would consume. So again, not not very sort of realistic. So, so this particular study was interesting because they, um, they were looking at the effects of four different sweeteners. So they were looking at the effects of um, stevia, saccharin, aspartame and, and, and sucralose. Um, and they got people to wear glucose monitors so they could do glucose tolerance tests quite easily. And as you said, they took samples from their, um, from their mouth and from their stools to look at their gut um, microbiome. Um, and um, they, they, they only really did the intervention for about two weeks. Um, so it's quite a short term study. 
Um, and um, whilst that is long enough to show impacts on glucose and, and gut micro, microbiome, it's not really telling us what, what's the impact of that in the future and will those effects continue or are they transient? You know, th those sorts of things aren't really alluded to in this study because it was too short. The other thing that's interesting is they, they wanted 120 people in this study. Um, so they wanted 20 in each arm, including the sort of the... the um, the um, control arms. Uh, and in order to uh, get that number of people, they had to actually screen thousands of people because they were looking specifically for people who did not consume any sweetness in the last six months. So now that's quite a good methodological approach, but it doesn't reflect real life. Um, they also wanted people who were, you know, healthy in inverted commas and, and, you know, were not obese and didn't have any other conditions, et cetera. So, so again, you know, we're not really looking at a population which is reflective of, of most of the UK or, you know, most of the people that we're speaking to. The other interesting thing about this study is, is that the two out of the four sweeteners, which they found to have an impact on glucose tolerance, which was saccharin and, and sucralose, aren't commonly used, for example, in, in soft drinks. Um, and, and the other sweetener in the study, which aspartame, is the one used in uh, primarily in soft drinks. And that wasn't found to have an impact on, on glucose tolerance. So I think whilst this does contribute to the science, you know, it's only the third study really that's looked at microbiome um, in humans with sweeteners. Um, it doesn't provide us um, with a you know, clear cut answer to changing our approach and our advice just yet. Yeah, which is very similar to a lot of different areas of dietetics and indeed gut health. So reading between the lines, it sounds like really more research is needed in this area. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, one of the things about about sweeteners is there's been the kind of um, some people have, have said, oh, you know, they're inert, you know, that some of them aren't digested, metabolized, and therefore they don't have any impact on on the human uh, on human physiology. Um, however, we wouldn't think that about any other ingredients or, or food stuff that we consume we, we would expect everything to have some effect and 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 we don't ever consume anything in isolation you know we consume um we consume what is quite a complex mixture of um, ingredients don't we and so this concept that that sweeteners are inert is not really one that is you know has a lot of validity and um but but what we do need to know more about is what is the mechanism you know, how, how, if sweeteners do have an impact, how, how does it, how do they have an impact? And, and there's not a lot of research which tells us that. Um, and, you know, we consume sweeteners in, in, in such tiny, tiny quantities. It's hard to think about how they might impact. And the microbiome is obviously the area which, which, are being, which is being focused on here. Um, but I think the fact that there's huge, such huge personal variation in response means it doesn't really give us anything clear cut to take away. We do need to understand it more before we can change our advice. Mm, so watch your space. Um, and then moving on to my next question, um, I think it's time for us to probably do a bit of myth debunking. So mm -hmm. tell me, what are the three most common myths that you hear um, either amongst consumers or perhaps other healthcare professionals about non-sugar sweeteners? And can you debunk these myths for us? Yes, I can. Or, ev or even just my friends and family <laughs> who come up with them. So, uh, you know, one of the most common ones is um, some, somebody might be drinking a full sugar drink, for example, and they'll say, oh, um, but, you know, sweeteners are worse for you than sugar, aren't they? Uh, and so therefore we shouldn't, we shouldn't be having them. Now, e even, with, um, even with, you know, fairly um, new research that's come out as the studies we've been discussing, where the headline might suggest that um, 
um, there are some health concerns. Eve, even adding that into the body of research, um, we still conclude that sugar is more harmful than sweeteners in, in that we, you know, we're concerned about free sugar intake. We're concerned that it has a link with um, obesity and in turn can increase risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, and, and as given that, you know, quite a large sections of the population um, still need to reduce their free sugar intake. Um, it's unrealistic to think that, you know, people are going to go directly from um, full sugar drinks, for example, to only drinking water. And, and actually, it's not necessary because the evidence um, doesn't suggest that there are harms or, or health concerns with consuming sweeteners. And for, so for some people, it can help them to move towards a healthier, more sustainable way of eating uh, where they can still enjoy some, some sweet foods. So sweet foods and drinks. So so yeah, so definitely not worse for your health than sugar. Um, and, and in fact, when you look at the research, the research where they've done where, where there's been a randomised trial and, and there's been a direct swap from sugar to sweetener, that's where you see tend to see most of the benefits. So so in, in a direct swap form, um, definitely not worse for your health. So so that's one of the myths. Um, the other the other myth is um, is that they still cause your blood glucose to rise. Um, and, and I hear this a lot from people living with diabetes that, um, you know, they, they, they're a bit unsure about switching to, you know, a particular drink. They think, oh, no, it's just going to have the same effects on, on blood glucose. Um, and actually, the evidence suggests that apart, you know, that there is not um, an increase in blood glucose. And in fact, there's even a European um, or a, an approved health claim um, that if you're replacing sugar with, with sweetener, you get less of a rise in blood glucose after eating. Um, so the evidence there is, is, is pretty strong that you don't get an increase in blood glucose after, after consuming um, sweeteners. The final one is that they uh, make you want to eat more. <laughs> um, and so, you know, people think that by having this sweet taste without the calories associated that you, you know, people think you're kind of tricking your body and therefore you're going to somehow compensate for that later on. Um, but actually when you look at the research into, into appetite um, regulation, that's not the case. Um, and there's even some evidence that if you're um, trying to um, eat a healthy balanced diet um, and you're experiencing cravings that having um, non-sugar sweetened, foods or drinks can actually help you to satisfy those cravings. And so therefore they might actually help you achieve your, your goals in, in, in following a healthy nutritious diet. So, so no, there's not evidence um, either that they make you consume more. Yeah. I think those are very common um, questions that us dietitians come across when we're speaking to family and friends. So that's been very interesting. Um, I just wanted to pick apart what you said in a bit more detail, because I, I'm aware that the World Health Organization have written a draft guideline, which has a conditional recommendation in it to suggest that non-sugar sweeteners shouldn't be used as a means of achieving weight control or reducing risk of non-communicable disease. So what, what are your thoughts on this as a diabetes specialist dietitian? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it certainly um, challenges our thinking and, and, and makes us look, look at this in detail. 
um, you know, having having looked at the report, it's obviously still in draft form, so so it may yet still change. Um, it's based on the systematic review um, that was conducted for them earlier in this year. So they've used the evidence from that systematic review to to, to draft this report. And when you look at the systematic review, I, I just need to take you back again to um, to evidence. You know, to how do we grade evidence? How do we use evidence to inform our understanding of um, of nutrition and, and what advice we should be giving? And, and we need to separate separate interventional research from observational research because observational research can't denote cause and effect, um, whereas interventional research, you know, such as randomized trials can. And when you look at the, the different types of research that, that were used in that review that was published earlier this year that informed the guideline, um, when you look at the interventional research, RCTs, you're seeing mostly positive outcomes. Um, and so that sort of leads me to believe, you know, where you're controlling for everything and, you, and you're doing things like a straight swap from sugar to sweetener, there are some benefits um, and, and there is not the concern of harm shown in those studies. Um, in fact, in the report themselves, that the World Health Organization acknowledged that, um, you know, the, the, the interventional trials where they're swapping sugar, um, uh, sweetener and sugar, um, there aren't many of those. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you look at the observational research, that's where you get what could be sometimes these spurious associations, which aren't always, um, they don't always have a mechanism to explain them. Um, and so what the World Health Organization have done is they've looked at, you know, what is the evidence for benefit? What is the evidence for, um, for long-term um, health risk? And, and they've really come down in a very, very um, conservative approach of saying the evidence for, for benefit is there, but not, not that strong. And they're saying that the evidence for long-term risk um, is unclear. And so they're saying in, in that sense, um, it, as a public health strategy, they're suggesting that there shouldn't be a, a, a widespread shift um, away from um, sugar to, to sweeteners. So having said that, I think there are individual, um, there are groups of patients and, you know, diabetes is a really good example of that, where in fact, if, if you read the, 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 the guideline, they, they do specifically say it doesn't cover diabetes because the evidence in diabetes is, is you know, is, is stronger um, and it has a therapeutic effect. You know, we're, we're directly replacing sugar, which we know causes an immediate rise in blood glucose with, with something which doesn't. So, um, so they have a particular use in diabetes and the guideline doesn't cover that. So I think, you know, going back to what I said earlier about it's difficult to isolate individual ingredients. Um, you know, the fact that they're looking at all sweeteners as one group when they're actually different um, substances makes it a bit hard to see, you know, how can we group these, you know, 11 or, or more different types of um, ingredients in the same way when they probably have different effects. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, but from my point of view, I don't think it's going to be changing my advice as a dietitian. Um, you know, certainly in, you know, some people who are trying to manage their weight and, and in people with diabetes, I still think that these um, sweeteners have, have a useful place. Yes, absolutely. And do we know when these guidelines are going to be finalised and published? Have they given a date? So the consultation's closed. Um, I think they're aiming for the end of this year. Um, but yeah, the consultation is closed now. And I think it's, you know, it's worth just reflecting on the fact that they've said it's a conditional 
um, guideline. You know, in other words, it, it, it's conditional on 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 some of the um, caveats from the evidence and the fact that it might change. And they do acknowledge in in the in the document this issue of reverse causality. Um, you know, which is this issue around the observational research. Are you actually observing something which is a result of something an earlier decision rather than um, or an earlier condition, if you like, rather than um, the substance that you think you're observing. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. And you you just mentioned that you um, obviously discuss non-sugar sweeteners with your patients with diabetes. Are there other areas of dietetics that you think these sweeteners could be a useful tool for dietitians to consider? Yeah, I think so. I think there is, I mean, there's evidence in weight management. Um, so, you know, there's um, there are RCTs and systematic reviews which show that um, they help you to reduce your calorie intake if you if particularly if you swap them for sugar so you know I think that's what I keep coming back to it's it's you know making a swap from sugar as part of a healthy balanced diet they can help modestly with with weight loss so so for example there was a study early this year by McGlynn um, which was you know quite a well conducted study and showed an average um, weight loss of about a kilo um, just by switching from from sugar to, to sweetener. Um, so I think, you know, in weight management, where people are trying to reduce their calorie intake, there's definitely a use there. That's what I will continue recommending them to patients in that area. And as you said, in diabetes, you know, particularly, you know, if you think about type 1 diabetes, people with type 1 diabetes um, would struggle to manage their condition if they're going around drinking full sugar drinks all the time. Um, and so it allows people with type one diabetes to have those drinks um, as everybody else, um, you know, can enjoy them without the blood glucose increasing. And on that note about diabetes, I'm aware that you were on the Diabetes UK 2018 Nutrition Working Group for Evidence-Based Nutrition Guidelines for the Prevention and Management of Diabetes. What did these guidelines conclude with regards to non-sugar sweeteners? So actually, um, in the guidelines, we signposted to lots of existing position statements um, and, and the sweeteners have their own Diabetes UK position statement, which was also published in 2018, the same, the same year as the guidelines. So we, so we were signposting to that. And what they do, uh, Diabetes UK, along with, for example, the NHS, uh, British Dietetic Association, uh, all, all pinpoint to the fact that sweeteners are safe um, and um, and that they can be a useful strategy in in reducing um, calorie intake, um, and they can also aid glucose management. So that's the position of Diabetes UK um, at the moment. Um, and you know, I think using sweetness as part of an overall approach to diet, um, you know, as I said earlier, it can help you to maintain other dietary changes, which might be more challenging. Um, you know, if you can still enjoy something sweet tasting. Um, without worrying about the calories or, or the effects on blood glucose, so so as it stands, you know they're part of they're part of a position statement which recommends them as a useful strategy as part of a healthy balanced diet. And um, as we come to the end of the episode, uh, I'm sure lots of people listening are wondering what the British Dietetic Association's stance is on non-sugar sweeteners. Are you aware of um, any kind of position statement? Have you been involved in anything with them, for example? So, yeah, there is a position statement, um, which is actually due um, for update, um, and it covers um, covers non-nutritive sweeteners across the board. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's talking about the benefits in dental health, 
for example, as well as the benefits in, in weight management and, um, and diabetes. Um, so yeah, the, the, the BDA, the British Diet Association statement is, is due for update, but it, it says very similar things to the Diabetes UK one. Um, I suppose what we'll be putting in, 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 in the new one when it's updated is more of the most recent evidence um, around, you know, there's a lot of interest around gut microbiome, of course. Um, but yeah, still, still recognised as a helpful strategy in helping to achieve people's goals around weight management and diabetes. And what do you think the future holds, Paul, for non-sugar sweeteners? What kind of direction are we heading in, do you think? Well, I think they aren't, aren't, they're not going away and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're in a lot of products. So, that you know, they're actually very useful. They've actually helped the UK to achieve our sugar reduction strategy. So as part of the soft drinks levy, the reformulation of soft drinks um, was partly achieved um, through through the use of non-sugar sweeteners. Um, we actually, uh, in the UK, um, seven out of 10 drinks purchased, soft drinks purchased are low or no sugar. Um, so consumers um, are using these products. They want these products um, that, you know, they aren't going away. You know, we also value having them in, um, in other things like toothpaste, um, yogurts, uh, chewing gum. So, you know, they do have a really valuable role in, um, in the diet at helping to, um, helping to keep our teeth and gums healthy as, as, as well as reducing calorie and, and sugar intake. I think what we need is we need more research um, which looks at this head-to-head approach of, you know, where it's in interventional research, randomized controlled trials, which looks at head-to-head comparison of sugar versus sweetener versus water. And I think that type of research will help to demonstrate more of the use and the value of sweeteners and where, where we should be really promoting and targeting them, targeting their use in our dietetic practice. So, so I think that's what we need for the future. And in terms of education for health professionals, especially dietitians, um, sounds like more could be done. So what do you think we can do to kind of better educate um, the dietetic workforce about the benefits of non-sugar sweeteners? Yeah, there are some resources out there already. So, for example, um, on, on the British Soft Drinks Association website, there is a, a kind of resource centre with some CPD activities, which have been um, accredited by the BDA. If you, if you Google... Um, if you Google the Sweeteners Resource Centre, you'll come across that. Um, the International um, Sweeteners Association has also got quite a lot of resources and, and research on there. Um, but then, you know, that does rely on people going and looking for it for themselves. Um, but yeah, I do think there needs to be, you know, stronger education about sweeteners in nutrition and dietetic education programs because um you know it wasn't gone into in lots of detail when i was training um and it's something you kind of have to learn a little bit for yourself and i think if you're working in areas like diabetes or in weight management it's important to understand the range of sweeteners their potential benefits and uses and where they're found um and currently I'm, i think there's a there's a, a bit of lack of confidence among some healthcare professionals in that area Yes, and we can certainly link to some of those useful resources that you've mentioned in the show notes if people would like to go and have a look at those in more detail. And my final question to you, Paul, is what would you like to be the main takeaway message from this podcast episode? Yeah, the the takeaway message is is that sweeteners are safe. Um, There are hundreds of studies on individual sweeteners demonstrating 
their safety. Um, the, there's a wide range of sweeteners available that all have different taste profiles um, and that they have some benefits and uses, particularly around weight management, um, dental health, and in managing blood glucose. Um, so I think go and educate yourself, go and find out more about them um, and understand them better. Um, that would be my takeaway message. Thank you. Definitely um, some food for thought. And thank you so much for your time today, Paul, and for sharing your thoughts and experiences of non-sugar sweeteners with us. It's been a really insightful conversation. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out very soon. Bye.